Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. So open up to Leviticus 4. So we're going to be tonight, and we're doing the fourth, because each of the first five chapters of Leviticus is one of the sacrifices. So we're working our way through those sacrifices. And I'm going to start off right away and just get the first two verses in your head, and then we'll set things up a little bit. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally, your translation may have a different word there, against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them. As for context, I want to just quick review the first three um, sacrifices. The first one was the burnt sacrifice. It atones for your sin. And it has to be, you start with that. That's the first one that you start with because that's how you get accepted by God. Your sins are forgiven, 1 John 2.12. The second one is the grain or the gift offering. Once your sins are forgiven and you're in fellowship with God, you think, how do I give something back to the Lord? And the Lord asks uh, for a portion. Uh, you contribute to the Lord with tithes and offerings, and those become gift offerings. And they're two kind of different things. And that is because you are loved or out of love for God, you voluntarily give those gifts and those offerings. You now are, you have known God, 1 John 2.13. You're saved, you're part of the kingdom. The third one is the peace offering. You've been atoned for, you're saved, you're part of the kingdom. You're tithing and you're giving your gifts to the Lord. So you're giving that first fruit to the Lord. And then there's this celebration or fellowship that there you are now part of a body of believers, a congregation, or at this period in history, you're part of a nation called Israel. And that nation then is something that you celebrate and you celebrate with other people with these massive peace offerings. And for most of those, that's a Thanksgiving feast. That comes back, people get to eat that and share it. 1 John 2.14, you've overcome the wicked one, it's time to celebrate, right? Then you get to those, okay, so those three are all sweet aromas to the Lord. The Lord loves those offerings because they're voluntary and they come from a, a soul that has a good heart. And God moves then from the easy thing to do, which is atonement, to these more intimate things to do. And you have this progression that happens in the faith. And then God turns towards refining us, right? So those are the things. I love the salvation. That's a plus. I love the gift and that joy of giving and, and getting back from the Lord, getting these blessings. And I love the fellowship with other believers. One, two, three, all voluntary, all from the heart. Amazing. But four and five are not voluntary. They're mandatory. If you come into these situations, you need to do these things to maintain your fellowship with the Lord. Um, so as you mature in your faith, you kind of grow towards this heartfelt desire to be holy. And I loved the question that Christina asked last week afterwards. And I got to the sin after, and it's the answer to your question. Because in that desire to be holy, you can become holier than thou, and you take on this attitude that I am holy. It's my new person. And you become one of those people that Jesus really didn't like. Or... You pursue holiness, and you do it a lot. So out of curiosity, I looked up the word holy in Leviticus. Leviticus is all about holy. There's 94 uses of the word holy in Leviticus. To be holy, to become holy, to work towards being holy. There are zero uses of the word holiness, the status of being holy. In other words, it's a pursuit that you never arrive at. Because no one is holy, no, not one. No one is perfect. No one is without sin. So the fourth sacrifice, the sin sacrifice, where we're at in Leviticus 4, is essential for everybody except for Jesus Christ. So the metaphor kind of, you know, the idea, when we talked about the atonement sacrifice, the Jesus fits right in as that. He fits into the sin offering in some ways, but not in others. And it's interesting to see how this plays out, where each sacrifice has something slightly different, but they're similar enough to where you kind of read through them, and it gets really hard to read through on your own. 
So now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, notice it starts again with the word now, just like Leviticus 1.1. It's almost like we've started a new section in this. Like the first three sacrifices were a unit. They went together. And these second two sacrifices, the sin sacrifice and the trespass, are a little bit different. So now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments, a person there is actually the word for soul. So if a soul sins unintentionally, and the word unintentionally is tough. It's shagaga in the Hebrew. It means to wander. If you wander off, uh, or uh, oftentimes your Bibles might have it translated as ignorant, that you sin in ignorance, or you do an inadvertent sin. All of which imply that it's not your heart that wants to be doing it anymore. Remember when Paul said, I do the things I don't want to do, and I do do the things I don't want to, and it's a very confusing sentence, and you got to say it three times fast. When he's doing that, he's expressing a heart that wants to be holy, but we fail. And we screw up all the time. And the thing that happens to new believers is then they beat themselves up about it. And it's a great tool for the enemy to permanently convict people without reconciling back with God. And God addresses that really early on in his progressive plan for redemption. He gives you the sin offering. You can do the sin offering. The sin is dealt with and it's done. And that becomes something where you just want that repentant heart. So it's not an accident. It's not like, oops, I killed somebody's sin. It's this kind of, we're trying to serve the Lord in this area, but we fail over in this area. And then two years later, as we've really figured this out, we come back and say, wow, I've been doing this for years, and it's really something I feel convicted about. You go, you give your sin offering, it's done, start new, become a new creation, and move on. So it's a way in which believers can move from infant believers to mature believers. It's kind of interesting how that works. So if, and there's going to be different categories, and, and as we walk through this, really it's in four sections, this chapter is. And the sections are based by who is doing the sacrifice. And the differences between the sin sacrifices are based on who's doing it. This is interesting. If the anointed priest sins, so we start with the priesthood, bringing guilt on the people, when a priest sins, they are then the ones supposed to be doing the atonement for everybody else, and they're tainted, then they're wrecking, they're putting guilt on the whole nation that they're supposed to be serving. So those of you in the ministry, you're held at a different level of accountability. I feel sorry for you. And then we started a Bible study, and now I'm in the same place. Then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. So you're going to have priests coming up here in verse 3. You're going to have the congregation as the second group. Then the rulers are the third group. And then the common folk are the fourth group. So those are the four groups. Again, we see without blemish. We talked about that last week. There's, again, a process of sorting things out. And when it comes to sin, that sorting process that we saw in the peace offering had something to do with, like, figuring your life out. And that's not easy. Once Levi said he wished God would just say what to do today and make it really easy. But maturity in the faith, God doesn't make it that easy because he wants you to sort it out. And he wants you to sort out what you need to be working on in your life. And the only way to do that is to talk to God. So it draws you closer to God to sort out what you're supposed to be kind of getting separated from your life. So you separate the fat from the meat. Verse 4, He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head, which we talked about in chapter 1, and kill the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. It actually goes inside the tabernacle. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. It occurred to me after all these sacrifices going day and night, the pure amount of blood that had to be poured off next to this altar. And I wonder at some point if the priest had to like walk in it, right? If their feet would just be an inch deep because you put that much moisture on any kind of soil or dirt, it just turns to mud. And you think that there's a point at which they're so drenched in this stuff um, as being the mediator between humans and God, 
the primary mediation is going to be the smell of, the feel of, and the squish of blood everywhere, right? So there's a vivid image that takes that gets taken on here with sin, and this blood sprinkling has an effect on our relationship with God, and there's three different ways. One in front of the veil. With that blood, it affects somehow our ability to come into the presence of God. When you go inside that tabernacle, you're in the presence of God. It stops, however, at the veil. That's new. And then this veil, which is this beautiful, beautiful, ornate, embroidered piece, is going to get blood sprinkled all over it, right? And after a while, that would get caked on, and it would just be this thing that blocks because the sin won't come into the presence of God. And that veil protects that the ark and those kinds of things from that happening. The second thing is also inside the, the tabernacle is the, the horns of the altar of sweet incense, which again, we know from when we looked at that back in Exodus, represents prayer or prayers going up to the Lord. Somehow or another, when there's sin in your life, it affects your prayers. It gets in the way and that needs to get purified too. And then of course, the altar of burnt offering needs to be part of this too. There's And that's outside the tabernacle where everyone can see it. Sin affects your life in that it affects your relationship with God, it affects your ability to pray and communicate with God, and it affects your relationship with everybody else in the congregation, in the community. It just does these things. And when they're atoning for it, they're going to sprinkle blood in those three areas to represent those three pieces. So where the burnt offering represents our lives, Jesus gave his life as a perfect burnt offering. The sin offering represents how we still have to give up the sin after we're atoned for. There's two kind of elements or aspects to atonement in the Hebrew system. So you get rid of your sin, you kill it, and you're going to send it you're going to send it outside the camp in the next one. So we need a priest that isn't tainted with sin. Once we have that, we get to verse 8. You take the take it he shall take from it all the fat of the bull as a sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that's on them by the flanks. And the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove. And as it was taken from the bull of the sacrifice of the peace offering, that sounds really similar to last week, right? Then the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering. So the sin offering and the atonement offering get burnt up together on the same altar, right? There's a separation process, just like the peace offering, where you have to divide these things out. These things come from the innermost parts of that beast. So it's very similar. 11, but the bull's hide and all its flesh with its head and legs, its entrails and offal, the whole bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn it on wood with fire with the ashes are poured, it shall be burned. <clears throat> Wait, what? All the good stuff gets thrown out? So there's a piece of it where you pull things out and you offer it to the Lord, but the rest of it, you're just going to get rid of it. You're going to dump it. With the priest version of the sin offering, there's nothing left over that's good. Symbolically speaking, there's nothing worth anything with a person that's in the ministry that struggles with, with the sins of the Old Testament, right? So if you're not dealing and wrestling with sin and you're in the ministry, you're giving over to sin, even when it's inadvertent, even when it's an oops, I screwed up, when you, are, when you become aware of it, you're supposed to do this. Right? When you learn that you're sinning or you're convicted of sinning through a relationship with God, you're supposed to deal with the sin. And when that doesn't happen, the priesthood isn't worth much. Nobody wants to go learn the Bible from somebody that's deep in sin or having an affair or, or messing around with stuff they shouldn't be messing around with. Or frankly, slothful. You ever had a pastor that just doesn't work? Right? These are kind of hard things to deal with, and they're not things that shine well upon the priesthood. And in the sin offering, that sin gets thrown outside the camp, dismissed, thrown away. That's all the good barbecue meat. Gone. That's a waste, and it's a tragedy. And you don't have to struggle or resonate with my love for good meat. It's a waste. And you think of the priesthood or what this represents. It's a total waste when somebody's called to serve the Lord and then they still struggle with sin. You've lost a soul or a person that's worthy of serving that God could work with and nothing ascends to God. It just gets thrown out, to the, thrown out of the camp, unlike the burnt offering. The word burnt in verse 12, this was super cool. This was one of those mind-blown things when I saw it. 
when we did the burnt offering in chapter one, remember I said the word burnt there actually meant ascending to burn up. It ascends to the heavens and that that was a really key word because it matches with the New Testament. This is a different word for burn. The word here is seraph, which is to set something on fire. But if you look at the root word, it actually means to swallow something and pull it downward, right? It's to suck something into the fire. So where the burnt offering ascends to the heavens, the sin offering burns down. And we still use the same in the English language. Something can burn up or something can be burnt down. And this is the burnt down version of the word. And I just thought that was fascinating. I hope your mind is blown as much as me because sin isn't worth anything and it doesn't ascend to God. It doesn't go past the veil. It goes down and it burns to the ground. And that's what you're supposed to do with this bowl. You're supposed to take all this perfectly good meat that could be eaten and used for a peace offering, but it's not. It's going to get taken outside of town. It's going to get burnt down. It's going to get sucked in. So... This also works for whole people groups, a lot like some of the other offerings we've seen. One sacrifice can take on all the sin of an entire people group. Kind of cool. Same process. Verse 13. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have something and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which should not be done, and are guilty, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, that's key. Then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle meeting and the elders of the congregation. Later, the elders of the congregation are going to get called the Sanhedrin because they're part of the, the, the Mosaic law. They become a group that has a title later on. And when we get to the New Testament, we call them the Sanhedrin. They shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. All the elders are doing this. They all got to get in close to a bull, put their hands on his head. I just think this is the most hazardous thing to do. Like you have Spanish people doing games with bulls. Like it's 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 not the sort of thing that you, I mean there'd have to be a little worry and you get that many people crowded around this bull. Then the bull shall be killed before the Lord, also a violent spectacle. Bulls don't like being killed. There's a lot of strength there to be thrown around. The anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood to the tabernacle of meeting. And then the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. That's the incense or the prayer altar. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering, the altar of atonement, the bronze altar, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall take, it, take all the fat from it and burn it on the altar. And he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull of the sin offering, and then thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. Whoa. That's new, right? We didn't see that kind of forgiveness happen before, did we? So <laughs> of the different categories, the priesthood is the only category where it doesn't specifically say it will be forgiven, which should give a, a level of like, seriousness to the priesthood or being serving in that role but when the congregation sins unintentionally and they do this verse 20 it shall be forgiven them it's done you don't need to live in guilt forever so there's times in israel's history where they have kings that aren't making them follow the law then they get a godly king and the king says look here's the law we're supposed to have been doing all this and we haven't been so they give a sin offering and it's over with the lord just brings them back into the kingdom welcome back if the heart's in the right place and there's actually a repenting heart, then the sin gets stopped because the heart's repentant and God accepts that and he forgives you. Then you should carry the bull outside the camp, burn it as he burned the first bull. It's a sin offering for the assembly. So again, the bull is worthless. We waste all the meat. A nation that's falling away from the Lord is a wasted nation in God's eyes, right? If it's a, an entire group of people living an ungodly life, it's just a waste. And it goes outside the congregation. It shall be forgiven them in the past tense like that is the first time we see it in the whole Bible. So when we have sin, and we didn't have sin before the law, right? Before the law, everybody was in this unintentional sin state. But once you hear the law and you learn the law, now you're accountable to the law, and now we can have forgiveness, which wouldn't exist without a tabernacle, which wouldn't exist without a nation, which wouldn't exist without Joseph finding a place in Egypt, which wouldn't exist without Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob setting up this family 
it's all been a progressive revelation by the Lord to make this system happen. Moses made a request back in, back in Exodus when the people first sinned because they heard the law, remember, and then they sinned right away. And he came and he said, If I've found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we're stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. That was the initial thing that God did. God never answered that question. Unless you see it as this being the answer to the question. Because he's still talking to Moses. It's still the same conversations that he's been having with them. And it's really only been a couple weeks' time between that event and the, you know, remember, there was two weeks be between when they built the tabernacle and then they kind of set everything in motion and brought this to be. So I know for us it's been a lot longer than that, but biblically speaking, it hasn't been. This is kind of the answer to his question. And he's saying, will you pardon our iniquity? And God says, if you want that iniquity pardoned, now that we have a tabernacle, this is what you do and it's pardoned. This is how I know that you want to repent. So nations can sin and they can find repentance. Nations can be forgiven. Priests aren't promised forgiveness. And I think that's tough. Mark 9.42, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a huge millstone tied around his neck and to be thrown out to sea. New Testament concurs. There's a responsibility when you teach the word or when you are serving other people or ministering to other people. I took that verse really seriously when I was a new teacher. Man, I got a job. I got a responsibility here. And it's not good if you lead kids astray. Like you have a job to do and you need to give them truth. Then he shall carry the word yatsa means to exit, go out and leave. It's a, it's a directional thing. So even the word he shall carry, and then it says where to outside the camp. It's the key there is that you're exiting the city. You're exiting the fellowship when you do this. Oh, cool. I copy and pasted a whole section. We're going to have a lot shorter teaching tonight than I thought we were. No, I'm just kidding. It's only a paragraph. I want to compare the burnt to the sin again. These are They sound so similar that discern them, I think, helps to teach us what needs to happen, right? The burnt offerings accepted by God and it ascends to God. The sin offering is cast out and rejected by God. Do you see the difference? Like we're judged based on the sin, right? The burnt offering, Jesus ascended to God for us. The sin offering, Jesus actually takes the punishment for us. Very similar images to have, but very different roles when it comes to atonement. Atonement has to do with being forgiven. It also has to do with getting rid of and purging that sin out of our lives. So Jesus is without blemish, and in both sacrifices, there's the offering needs to be without blemish, right? He takes the punishment and the rejection, and in his love, he saw us, he actually was willing to take that punishment or be cast out of the city. And in fact, after Jesus was beaten, he was brought outside the city, thrown on wood, and he was killed or, or disposed of outside the city. So it's really key in the Gospels when they talk about the location or where, you can start to see why that was a big deal to them. So he meets the criteria for the burnt offering sacrifice and in all the same ways meets the same criteria as we get to this sacrifice. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. He took the punishment. And Isaiah gives four different ways and that's not even New Testament. That's just prophetic. That's what the Messiah will do. The burnt offering then is done. And now in the sin offering, the offering becomes the sin that gets disposed of or thrown out, right? Our lives go up to God. Our sin gets thrown down to hell. And it goes in two directions. I feel like I can't make that point enough. Like it's such a huge difference. One, the burnt offering means we're accepted. The sin offering means we're forgiven. And it, there's a nuance there, but it's really important because I think in our church in America today, we have churches that go one way or the other, right? It's all about forgiveness and there's nothing about atonement, right? It's all about the grace that God gives, but we forget about the punishment that we deserved. 
right? There is a guilt and a sin, and there's also a grace and acceptance, right? And the sin is forgiven, so it's a harder topic to deal with, but if we don't deal with it, then people continue to live in their sin and never give a sin offering. They never deal with it. Or they think, well, I've said my prayer of atonement. I'm forgiven, so you never, then therefore you can't sin or your sin is something you don't need to be wrestling with? And the answer is you should wrestle with it, but don't get too prideful about having victories, right? Verse 22, our third category, a ruler. When a ruler sins, and we have a lot of future rulers in the room. When a ruler sins and has done something unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord his God in anything which should not be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge and he shall bring it as an offering a kid of the goats, a male without blemish, he shall lay his, head on the, he shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it at its place where they kill a burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering. Notice he's not bringing it into the tabernacle. He's not bringing it into the altar of incense. And he shall pour its blood at the base of the altar of the burnt offering. The blood doesn't go anywhere near God's presence. And he shall burn all its fat on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin and it shall be forgiven him very similar except for a few little things. First of all, there's no mention of throwing away the perfectly good meat. So for the rulers and for our next category, that is something where that meat and the skin and the leathers, we'll find out later in Leviticus, can go to the priesthood. That can be part of what supports the temple. The animal seems to have downgraded from a bull to a goat, and we don't know why other than that seemingly Rulers have a little more license in these things. Not that rulers' sin isn't as serious to that ruler's salvation as a priest's sin, but I think God can work with rulers that sin and will throughout the Bible. He doesn't work with priests that are in sin. But we have very famous rulers like David and Solomon and you know Cyrus, and we have kings that God has worked through to get things done that have also sinned. We don't see that example in the priesthood at all. In fact, God kind of doesn't work with priests when they're in sin at all. So you see this thing where there are redeemable pieces to a king even when they're in sin. Um, at least we hope they are because we look at our national leaders and we, we sure hope God can still work with some of our national leaders even when we have people that clearly have things they're not worried about in their life. So an example of this or what this looks like, um, we got to go to Ezra. Uh, Ezra chapter 9, I'm going to read from that. Um, yeah, this is what happens when kings or Israel has compromised. And Israel is a prophet that comes to Israel when the nation has fallen. And they've compromised, they're doing all sorts of stuff. They've dabbled in worldliness. They've started playing Canaanite games and music and all that other sorts of things. And he says, Ezra 9 Chapter 9, verse 2. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials of the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard, and I sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel. Notice that, by the way, back in Leviticus, it doesn't ask these people to pull their hair or rip their clothes, right? None of that's required. It's all been added culturally. These are all just signs of, you know, being in turmoil, but there's nothing that God has done or said or asked for people to do that, but they still do it. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and I fell upon my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. I like that phrase. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted to the heavens. That's what it looks like when a leader realizes their sin and does what God's asking them to do, right? And we're taught that through the sin offering, that there should be this immediate shift or change, okay? Okay. The priests then, the nation, and now we get to the commoners. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and is guilty, 
Or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a female without blemish. No idea why we change genders, but I got a theory and I'll come back to it. Otherwise, there really isn't a biblical grounding for why we change genders on the animal, but we do. If you're a common person and you find out about sin in your life, you go with a female from the herd. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, verse 29, and kill the sin offering at the place of burnt offering. The priest shall take some of its blood with its finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. Shall remove all its fat and all its fat is removed from the sacrifice of the peace as as fat is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering, and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma to the Lord. When a common person repents of their sin, we see the phrase sweet aroma return. God loves this. He kind of doesn't love it when priests have to do this stuff. When a nation does this, it's like a thing that has to be done. But when common people do this, it's a sweet aroma to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. So sweet aroma comes back. The heart has come back. A cynic could say, look at all the ugliness of sacrifices. As a system, as a mosaic system, as a part of this repentance thing that has to happen, the way God's trying to teach us silly humans what it's like to have a relationship with them, we see the first time in history the idea that when you sin, you have to apologize for it. In any way, shape, or form, in any world religion we had on the planet at this time, God's doing something totally new. It's one of the ways, I think, spiritually, you can identify that God created this system and not humans, because humans don't like to say when they're wrong. It'd be great to have a system where we don't have to do that, or we could secretly and privately deal with our sin. This isn't secret and private. You've got to haul your goat up through the camp into the tabernacle, past all the people in the tabernacle area, and walk up to the bronze altar, which is up on the front stage in front of everybody, and deal with this stuff. And say, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do this. Oh, my goodness. You don't need to pull your hair out of your beard or your head. You don't need to rend your clothing or anything like that. But you do need to go up and say you're sorry. Right? God has a way. We don't get to pick the way. And I think this is kind of another way to look at this. If you're not a cynic, it's not about how ugly sacrifices it are. You could also look around and say, look at all the forgiveness that's going on in this nation. Forgiveness becomes all the rage. Because when he brings these laws into place and people can just dump their sin, then every time you've ever felt guilty in your life, all you had to do is you know, give the equivalent of something to the church and publicly you know, tell your priest or your pastor, you know, I did this and I'm really sorry. The pastor says, you know what? You're forgiven and it's over. And it starts this tradition in Israel of how to deal with this spiritual state that we have, which is to be lost to sin. We can be redeemed and purchased by God, but I want the sin dealt with too. And I want the sin dead. I don't want it to control me. I don't want it to put me in a prison. I don't want to constantly be going back to it like a dog to my vomit. I want to get rid of it. And here's a new system for the first time in world history. This should be in a world history class. This is the first time in world history that any religious system has created a way to account for and atone for sin. Right? There's no such thing as sin in the Canaanite religions. You know, it was more about festivals and and getting drunk. Right? But we don't get to pick the way to do it. We don't get to choose the method of doing it because God creates the system. God says, here's a path to glory. Just do what I've asked you to do. Submit to the, the pathway that I've set up. And it's really simple. Verse 32. If he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish. If he brings a lamb, <laughs> what's clear here is it's what's being brought here isn't the point because it keeps changing. It doesn't matter what gets brought. It's about who's bringing it. Is it the priest? Is it the ruler? Is it the nation itself? Or is it a common person? Then he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it as a sin offering at the place where they kill the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with its finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. Just a comical thought. You're in the first century temple and while the people are out in the courtyard teaching, 
this is going on 100 feet away. The, the braying of bulls and the muling of sheep as they get their necks slit, and that's where they went to school. This had to be the most distracting classroom ever. And I just thought I'd share that because we have a lot of teachers in the room, and I used to be one too. Can you imagine having to teach a class with no walls, and right over there they're killing bulls? Think of the focus little Jewish children had to have at a young age to learn in that environment. Like, think of it, because I'd have been the kid going like this, and Rabbi so-and-so would have said, eyes up here, take your eyes off the cow that's being killed 200 yards away with eight people trying to hold it in place, and all these priests getting thrown around. That priest you didn't like so much just took a digger, and it's funny because it's muddy, and there's three inches of blood all over the floor. How would you focus? So you start a national culture of academic scholarship that's burlier than the world has ever seen. <laughs> just a thought. Verse 35, and he shall remove all its fat as the fat, of, not only that, the blood, they're pulling the intestines out of these cows. How, I would sit there and watch that all day versus memorizing, you know, anyways. He shall remove all its fat and the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. Then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for his sin that he has committed. And this is the beautiful part it should be forgiven him. That would get the rest of the students. Me, I'd be focused on the animals getting killed, but other people would see people getting forgiven, walking up with a heavy heart and leaving with joy and celebration and song. And there were also musicians in that tabernacle courtyard that would be playing round the clock, teams of priests that all they did was music. Another huge distraction for the people trying to take classes, but just a... Yes, it's ugly, but there's a beauty to this idea of forgiveness, that a life has to be given for that sin. That's the consequences of sin. So even before the law, everybody was still dying because death is the consequence of Adam and Eve's sin. And for every human being, they're going to die. That's the consequence. It's coming. Most of us will die too. However, I think the end is coming pretty quick. So anyways, just a thought as you're planning your retirement. So now the sin offering, the fourth one. You can be saved and still struggle with darkness. And until you conquer that battle for darkness, God's going to be working with you to get to that altar and get that sin sorted out and do that discernment and separation, just like the peace offering. Only the peace offering is about keeping the good stuff and giving it to the rest of the fellowship. But the sin offering is about yanking out the bad stuff and getting it out of the camp. Get rid of it. Sort it out. Make that your life mission and do it young and early in life. There's no particular sin that gets mentioned in these first descriptors. Next week when we get to the next chapter, it gets into particular sins. If you do this sin, then you have to do that sin offering. And if you do this sin, go do the sin. So we'll get to talk about all these great sins that other people do um, next week. And the remaining portions go to the priests. So the ruler and the commoner offerings are less costly than the national and priest offerings. And they are a little more redeemable than the national and the priest offerings. And again, as always, we'll go to Hebrews for commentary on this sacrifice. Hebrews 10. The whole book is a commentary on Leviticus. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. None of this works. So they would give these sin offerings and they'd still have sin in their life, right? It does. It falls short. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every single year. They keep doing these sacrifices. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They're talking about the sin offering, right? Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it's written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, you have neither desired or taken pleasures in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, 
These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. This is a key theological point. The point of the sin offering is for us to sacrifice our will for God's will. It's not about the bulls and the blood and all that sort of thing, which is why we don't do this anymore in the Christian faith. It is about saying, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And my will wants to sin, and I'm going to sacrifice that, and I'm going to do what you want me to do. And, verse 10 in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 10, and by that will we have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Your sins have been dealt with. God wants me to do his will, but I need a perfect sacrifice to perfectly deal with sin. So to take away sin perfectly, we need something that has no sin and is totally clean and without blemish. Jesus is that offering and serves as both our atonement sacrifice and our sin sacrifice. The first three get done out of a heart that seeks God. This one gets done for a heart that's fallen away from God. But when your heart falls away from God, you have to come back and fix that. This is where I got tripped up growing up. Because my, my pastor said, well, what, have you said a prayer of salvation? Yeah, then your sins are taken care of. And I'm like, yeah, but pastor, I really feel like smoking the cigarettes was sin. Like, I feel like I need to say I'm sorry. No, you don't. You never need to apologize. You are atoned for. And I was like, that, I still feel guilty. Why do I still feel guilty? And, but he's just like, because theologically, you've got to figure that out. And I just think, now as a grown-up, I feel like I wish I could go talk to my old pastor. I'll see him in heaven, I think. And I'll just say, you know, I think you were a little off on that, right? There's five sacrifices, and our church only believed there was one, right? And there's not. There's that, yes, there's that coming to atonement, being on good relationship with God, but there's a lifetime of doing this other stuff year after year after year. Why do we do it year after year? Because we're not perfect. And we need reminders, like it says in Hebrews 10, verse 3. It's a reminder of our sins every year. We still have sin even after we're atoned for and saved. So we still have to deal with it and wrestle with it. And that's what God wants. He wants us to deal with that because he's preparing us for a lifetime of fellowship with him. So we get made aware of our sin, we deal with our sin. I actually do think we can do sins and not be aware of it because we're stupid. And as we learn things, we become less stupid. And that's life. And that's a good thing. When we walk in the light and then we sin, that's a very different kind of relational breach than when we walk in darkness and sin. Right? There's also a, a slightly different distinction. When we sin and hurt someone else, we trespass against them. That's a different kind of sin than when we sin privately and we pretty much hurt ourselves. So next chapter is going to have more on the sin offering. It's also going to deal with the trespass offering. Because sometimes if I sin and I actually hurt you with my sin, there has to be some restitution there. i got to do something to fix that. I can't just say, oh, I'm so sorry, I burnt half your crops by accident. I have some accountability for those crops, right? For the good farm example that I grew up with. This allows, I think, for Christians to have this weird relationship with God. We love the Lord. We get closer to the Lord. The closer we get to the Lord, the more it reveals our sin. The more we walk in the light, the more we see that we do that's not right. And it's horrible. So that can lead to one or two kinds of Christians. A Christian that lives with guilt all the time. And this persistent guilt where you got to go into a confessional booth every week just to get the sin off you right? Which is unhealthy on one side of the spectrum or this other side of the spectrum where you'd feel no guilt at all because you're really not getting close to the Lord in the first place. You're kind of a lukewarm Christian and you never have sin revealed in your life. You never see that you're doing anything wrong. That's a problem on the other side of the spectrum. But there's this healthy balance where you recognize you're doing things wrong. You don't get woefully guilty about it and you deal with it. You say, I'm sorry. You make it up and you stop doing it, right? You repent, you join the kingdom, you get back on the team. Which was another way I was thinking the burnt offering and the sin offering. The burnt offering gets you on the team, the sin offering gets you on the field. Because you can get on the team and still ride the bench. And that's the worst, because now you got the worst of the Christian world and none of the secular world wants to hang out with you. Why would you do that? If you're going to get on the team, then get, try to be a starter. 
Like you want to work to be one of those people that actually saves souls and has fruit and wins people over. So again, that really, you can see where I was thinking of Christina's comment all week this week, right? The law does bring conviction into our life and that's a good thing, but it's not something we should be arrogant or prideful about. Like I have meet all the 10 commandments today, right? Or our pastor likes to say, if you can go one minute without sin, then maybe you could go two minutes without sin. And if that's possible, maybe you could go 10 minutes without sin, which is a weird conception of sin because we are sinners. It's not about time span. It's about who we are, right? So, but we don't want to get prideful about who we are because who we are is a sinner, that we were born into it, we're going to be into it until we're redeemed and made perfect um, by God. But it is about doing the right thing and trying to do the right thing all the time. James 4, verse 14, nails this conversation because I was looking through the whole Bible, finding stuff. For what is your life? You know, is your life, are you, do you feel that proud of who you are? What is your life? Is it even a vapor that appears for a little time and then it, pssst, it vanishes away? He didn't have the sound effect. I added that. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Man, I started to feel guilty about that because I say that all the time. Oh, I'll be there next week. And I should be saying, if the Lord wills me to be there, I'll be, I'll be there next week. And it starts to change your vocabulary a little bit, right? Because who are you to say you're going to be there next week? Your life's a vapor. You don't have that much control. But now you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. Okay, now I've been made aware of a sin because I was pretty happy about my sin. I went a whole week without sin. Shouldn't be boasting like that. It's evil. Verse 17, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's sin. Sound like the sin offering? Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, you didn't save yourselves and you didn't work yourself to goodness. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast or be arrogant. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We don't do good works, we're created for good works. But God puts in us the heart to do those things, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is a great challenge in the faith, and it's hard for new believers to understand this. New believers, it's like, just be saved and enjoy the feasts. Come for the peace offering. Make sure you start tithing. Get those habits down. All that stuff's voluntary. It's heartfelt. Come talk to me when you got questions about sin, right? But that, for some believers, can take years before they move from just enjoying a life in Christ to realizing, man, there's stuff I got to work on. There's stuff I got to wrestle with. Don't feel guilty about it. Deal with it. Don't spend years of your life going back to that sin again and again and again because you've never dealt with it. Pray to the Lord. Recognize you don't have the power to beat it. You never will. But God has the power for, to create in you the ability to do good works. He can make it so you don't sin. And you just say, Lord, I give up on this struggle. I can't stop saying naughty words all the time. Change my vocabulary. And wait a year and look back and your vocabulary will be changed. God will work that in your heart and he'll create in you a being who's capable of doing good works or whatever the sin is. I'm thinking of swear words because I wrestled with that for years. I swore like a sailor growing up because that's what we did in small towns. A great challenge in the faith is this idea that we're expected to do good, but we're not obligated to do good. We want to do good, but we don't do it on our own own power, we're reliant on a relationship with God in order to do every good thing that we do. And the only good that we do is done in love. And without love, it's just noise and showing off and being arrogant and putting on airs for other people. It doesn't matter. Love drives everything we do. Next week, we're going to touch on the trespass offering. Oh yeah, we're good for this week. Um, so we'll touch on the trespass offering. Um where the sin offering was about confessing things and it doesn't mention the acts. Next week, we're going to get the acts that are committed and then they don't mention people at all. So it just applies to everyone. So we'll get into those kinds of things. I'll warn you ahead of time, whenever the Bible talks about sin, just know it's the next chapter in the book. I'm not getting there or targeting you when I get to those topics because people are like, he's talking about me. And I don't even know what your sins are. And I don't necessarily need to know to do the next chapter of the book. So for now, let's pray. 
Lord and King, we just want you to do a work in our hearts. Lord, I believe everyone in this room has come to you and asked to give their lives to you. Lord, everyone here is sacrificing their time as a, as a holy and a sweet aroma to you to learn your word. And Lord, as we learn your word, we also learn the path you want us to walk. And we didn't design it. We've walked our own paths. Um, but as we learn that path, Lord, we're going to find out things that we're doing wrong and that we shouldn't be doing anymore. So Lord, I just pray that when the Bible steps on our toes, we move our toes um, and we don't get mad at the Bible. Um, Lord, we just appreciate your word. We love your word. We're so grateful we get to study it. We can hear directly from the God of the universe how we should live our lives and how applicable it is and how current it is. Lord, we know that your plan has been a progressive revelation and there are lessons and, and images that we need to learn about ourselves and about our relationship to you that come right out of this book and it's a deeper spiritual understanding. But Lord, by understanding it, we know how to share it. By, by understanding how it works, we know when we hear lies and we can uncover those and we can sort those out. Um, Lord, we know when we hear false teachers that point us away from the Bible and we know that when we, we go to you and we go to your word, uh, that you can teach us directly. And so, Lord, I just thank you for that so much. Thank you for the blessing. Lord, if there's anyone in this room right now that's wrestling with sin, um, they've got sin in their life and it's persistent and they can't shake it and they're struggling with it and it maybe even is hurting the people around them, Lord. Um, Lord, I just pray that they can come to you. They can go to their pastors. They can go to a friend, someone that keeps them accountable. They can go to someone else in this room, Lord, and they can um, ask for prayer. I think that's the first step. And Lord, sacrifice that sin that it's not ours to keep. It's ours to throw out of the fellowship. It's, uh, it's to get it out of our life. And it's not something to be toyed with or to, to do less of. It's something to get rid of and to burn it down and get rid of it completely. Lord, it, what does it benefit us uh, to, to save an eye or to save an arm and, 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 and lose our soul? Uh, Lord, if there's something in our life that makes us sin, help us to cut it out and throw it away and get rid of it. Um, it's just the, the precious value of the fellowship of the saints, the value of our relationship with you, the, the sweet aroma that a good relationship with you gives us, Lord. It's worth so much more. Purity is worth more than, than impurity. Um, and Lord, we want that prize, but some of us are struggling with it. We don't know how to get rid of it. Lord, I want you to just come into our lives and deal with it right now um, to make a change in our heart, a change in who we are, Lord. And we, lacking the power to defeat sin, we lean on your power to do it instantly. Um, Lord, remove those desires, reduce those instincts, Lord, those habits, and start changing our patterns of life and to do it in a real way. Lord, there's nothing in our life that's worth so much that we want to give it up. We want to give up our relationship with you. So we'll sacrifice anything you want uh, to get that sin out of our life and to be closer to you. So Lord, I just pray for that kind of conviction. I pray for us to have open eyes, to be humble enough to recognize that we may have done things wrong, especially as you start listing off the sins next week, Lord. So teach us your ways in all ways. Bless everyone in this room. May the joy of the Lord go with them. May the fellowship of the saints just warm our hearts and help us to be loving to others and to be graceful and to invite people into the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.